Hey everybody, this is Blackjack Apprenticeship member Grease Monkey, and for one day only I've taken over the Blackjack Apprenticeship podcast. My guest today has personally won $600,000 through Advantage Play and co-founded the church team, which netted over $3 million in Blackjack earnings. He's taught scores of students how to count cards. He's the face of BlackjackApprenticeship.com and has a new book called The 21st Century Card Counter. Please welcome my very special guest, Colin Jones. Hey, thanks for having me on my podcast. <laughs> thanks for, yeah, thanks for having yourself on the show. <laughs> so this podcast has a wide scope audience-wise. So some people might be very, very familiar with your story. Others might really be learning about you for the first time. So I was thinking we should spend a little bit of time just kind of going over your background. Obviously, you're extremely visible in the card counting community. There's been a documentary made about you called Holy Rollers, The True Story of Card Counting Christians, which features you and your co-team leader, Ben, and your team, which has been seen by millions of people. For the unanointed, let's go a little bit deeper into your background. You were a math major, right? Yeah, exactly. And tell us, I think you were a Red Robin waiter, is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. I studied math not because I had any real love of math, but everyone else in my family is a medical professional. I thought I'd be a doctor or something just like everyone else. So I'm like, well, I'll take calculus. And I had, I just wanted to start a punk band. That's all I wanted to do. <laughs> but I took calculus and I did well. I got an A. And so I'm like, well, I'll take, you know, the next class. And before I knew it, I still had no aspiration for a career, but I was closer to a math degree than any other degree. So I was, this is going to be the fastest way to graduate. And, you know, I enjoyed my math classes, but I didn't love math. And my parents and my grandpa, when he passed away, he left me money for college. So I didn't have to pay for college, which was really, really nice. But, you know, you still have expenses, books and stuff like that. So I worked at Red Robin. And the joke back then was that I got Ben into Red Robin and he got me into card counting <laughs> because I helped him. I was telling him, oh, this gig at Red Robin's great. I make, you know, minimum wage plus another like 10 to $15 an hour in tips. And he was working construction, making like 10 bucks an hour. And so he got a job at Red Robin, and then I guess he returned the favor by telling me he was teaching himself card counting. Amazing. So how long did it take you to really understand fundamentally the concepts of card counting, from learning it to putting it in practice and false starts? Talk us through that. Sure. So I didn't know how to play blackjack. I'd never been in a casino. I didn't know anything about the game of blackjack. And uh, Ben handed me two books, Basic Blackjack and Professional Blackjack, both by Stanford Wong. And he'd kind of highlight a few chapters, said, hey, read these. And it was written in a way that it made sense in terms of, you know, it wasn't hype. It was very mathy. But yeah, I was just kind of starting with basic strategy, all those things. It's kind of hard to remember. I think my training was awful. I think that I probably was a very, very bad card counter when I first started playing in casinos. I mean, I did the best I could. But there weren't really resources online. And a book, it says, learn this stuff. And fortunately, I was able to kind of watch. Ben was a few steps ahead of me. And so I could kind of watch and, and ask questions. But we only kind of worked on it together for, I'd say, probably a month. And then he was like, you need to decide if you're going to do this or not. And I was like, ah. He kind of came on a little strong. I thought, I'm not going to go all in on this thing yet. And so I stepped away for close to a year until I had gotten married. I didn't want to go back to Red Robin because my wife and I, we quit our jobs before we got married. We had no debt, but we, we had a little bit of savings. We just bummed around for a bit. And then I was like, I don't want to go back to Red Robin. So I was like, what if I tried this card counting thing again? So I worked on my training again, started playing at casinos. I'm sure it was awful. But through that, 
basically, I think my training, a lot of it was at the tables, which I don't recommend, but I think I got better and then kept bugging Ben to deal to me. Finally, he did, destroyed me. I played, made basic strategy mistakes, deviation mistakes, counting mistakes, betting mistakes. He'd add up my hand wrong and it just humiliated me, but it was the best thing that ever happened because I realized, okay, I'm making all sorts of mistakes and I cleaned it up. And the rest was, you know, sort of history. You guys use the high-low method of counting. I know there's a lot of methods out there. Why high-low? Well, that was kind of the first thing Stanford Wong talks about. And then towards the end of Professional Blackjack, he talks about halves. And there was a brief period where we were kind of working on teaching ourselves halves. But it was kind of like, well, we can get out there and generate EV right now. Or we can step back and learn a more complicated system. And there was a little bit of we can play, keep the count, do the true count, all those things, and and carry on, if we have to, a brief conversation with the pit boss with halves that seemed less realistic. And so it just felt like let's go with the thing that's working. And I think there was a little bit of we knew. So Ben had briefly been involved with a team. I don't think I'm allowed to say their name. But at the time, they were probably the largest, most active team. And they used Hilo. And we knew the Highlanders, Tommy Highland's team used high-low. And the MIT team had used high-low. So it kind of felt like if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Gotcha. And so really then the rest really is history. For anybody that wants a deeper dive, check out Holy Rollers, the true story of card counting Christians. It, it really is an incredible documentary. And what you guys were able to accomplish is astounding. I mean, I, I remember coming across it and my wife had to pick my jaw up off the floor. <laughs> it is a great story on so many levels, whether it's David versus Goliath, a small group of people beating the casinos, or uh, just the idea that just using your mind, you can generate value and find the glitch in the matrix, so to speak, that exists in casinos and can actually make money. Your book is called The 21st Century Card Counter. What does the term 21st century card counter mean to you? Yeah, well, when I wrote the book, it was really a desire to provide my best advice or my take on, there's so much information out there. And a lot of people say, hey, what book should I read? And it's really hard to answer that because the game has changed. And a book that was written, you know, I love the book, Bringing the Tales in Las Vegas. Uh, When I started getting invited to the Blackjack Ball, I voted for Ian Anderson to get into the Hall of Fame every year until he finally did get inducted. Like, I have so much respect for that book and for him, but I don't recommend a lot of the cover strategy that he recommends in the book because I just don't think the cost is worth it anymore in today's game. And so I wanted to write something that I felt like for today's card counter would give them the best jumpstart into either getting started or even if you're actively playing to say, look, this is the way I would approach it. This is the way not just I would approach it, but the people I know having success doing it, this is the way they approach it. And so we're trying to think of a title that illustrates this is the modern approach, but there's a book called Modern Blackjack and there's anything with good alliteration has been used, (laughs) you know, blackjack for blood and all that. So how has card counting changed from maybe 15 or 20 years ago? And what's the difference? There's a few big differences. 15 or 20 years ago, there weren't as many places to play. And the real money, if you want to try to do it, was Vegas high limit rooms. And the way to do that was to have some sort of, they had really, really good games, four deck, 
stand 17, only a deck cut off, surrender, resplit aces. So the initial house edge was really low. You could afford to do some things that would cost you some EV, but it was still affordable relative to the amount of money you could get on the tables if you had a big enough bankroll. And you could kind of get away with it. I would say now there are a gazillion casinos. There's more casinos, but you're not going to find a four deck with one deck cut off, stand 17, surrender, and throw them off with elaborate cover betting. (laughs) If you're putting big bets out, they're going to evaluate you or they aren't. It's it's funny because Joe748, buddy of mine, we we were just texting back and forth and we were kind of joking about that kind of play, that high cover kind of play. And he made this joke that N0 is just a number. So N0 is kind of like getting to the long run. And if you use that strategy in today's game, you're never going to get to the long run. So there just has to be a more, I'd say, if you really want the money, a more aggressive approach. I'm open to being proven wrong, but when I think of every card counter I know, it's an aggressive, fearless approach. That's what the church team did. That's the way the teams I've been influenced by the way that they played. It wasn't with a lot of cover. It was with a lot of aggressiveness and fearlessness. So one of the ways I was trying to answer some of these questions before I asked them too, and something that comes up a lot on blackjackapprenticeship.com because there's a a forum there where current APs as well as aspiring APs can buy ideas with each other. One of the issues in Las Vegas right now is that many places the blackjacks pay six to five as opposed to three to two. Was that going on 20 years ago? When did that change? It started probably 15-ish years ago, the 6 to 5 and and the CSMs. And Vegas on the Strip, it just feels like they're trying to squeeze every penny. Vegas has become more about experience than gambling. Vegas is making money off of the shows and off of the meals and things like that. And it feels like because it's not primarily about the gambling, they're just trying to get every penny out of people as quickly as possible at the tables because people are less informed of gamblers because they're not there to gamble. They're, oh, I'll, I'll hit up a table for a few minutes before I go to a meal or whatever. But if you get off strips, that's not really the case. And Vegas isn't the best place to count cards anymore. It has a lot of casinos and there are some good games. And less than a year ago, I've played on the strip betting up to $500 without back off. So it's still doable, but I wouldn't say, oh yeah, well, if you want to be a card counter, move to Vegas. That's not true anymore. Those crappy games started. It seems like they've gotten more, you know, and they're now charging for parking at a lot of places. It's just a lot of things. They're just trying to squeeze money out of people quickly. Well, and when all those expenses add up, it just means you've got to play that much longer just to cover your expenses before you're actually making money. Yeah. And if you're a smart AP, you know the places you can park for free and you walk the strip or you play the places off strip and there's smart approaches to Vegas still. I think there can be quite a bit of EV generated in Vegas, but it's not the mecca for card counting like it was 20 years ago. You know, one of the things I really love about your book is that you tell a lot of stories while also kind of educating the reader about blackjack. And I think for a newbie, the glamorization of what it must be like because they've seen a movie that kind of glamorizes card counting or and what it's like in Las Vegas and you know there's money flying everywhere and gorgeous women and free drinks and you know kind of versus the reality of what card counting is I think you do a good job in the book of kind of saying hey this is what the grind looks like and I definitely want to talk a little bit about that grind 
I also want to talk about failures because you are very open and honest about your failures early on as a card counter. And I love the honesty because for anybody that's learning this game that thinks that they're going to get this in two months or three months or five months and, and be ready to rock, probably has another thing coming to them. Can you tell us a little bit about some of your early failures and really like what it felt like? You're slinging big bets out there. Maybe you're playing perfectly, maybe you're not. But how did you kind of get over the emotional toll of losing? Yeah, well, if you like the way the book's written, I feel like most of the credit goes to Loud and Often, David, uh, because he said, Colin, write the book you want to write. And so, you know, I, I worried less about, I really thought about, well, what are the things I enjoy? And I was telling the stories and using that to try to teach. So if people enjoy that, credit goes to David. But as far as those early failures, and there were late failures too, but uh, getting over the emotional part about losing, I feel like I was very fortunate that I was always, almost always on teams. Um, that helped. And I don't think people need to hear that and say, oh, well, then I need to join a team. But I think you need a network. I think you need other APs that you can complain to <laughs> when you're losing or that can encourage you and vice versa. I think that that's really, really important. I think I had a little bit of luck at the very beginning. We didn't have any horrific losing streaks early on. And so I'm so thankful that we met who I call Sammy in the book. I actually just bumped into him at, at a Costco of all places. <laughs> and uh, and I was like, dude, just need to let you know I wrote a book. And I mentioned you. He said, you didn't use my real name, did you? And I said, no. no. He's like, good, because I'm still playing. But uh, anyway, I'm so glad we met him because he had played long enough. He knew the losing streaks you could have. And, you know, that saved us from probably, you know, overbetting and, and losing it all. But are there any specific failures I spoke about that came to mind? Yeah. You talk about one particular losing streak where you lost $86,000 at the Hard Rock in Las Vegas. Yeah. Um, I mean, let me just ask, like, so what was your bankroll at that time? Just to put in perspective, you know, $86,000 on its own doesn't mean much if your bankroll was a million dollars. If yeah. your bankroll was $120,000, that's a, a much bigger piece of the pie. And so what was, yeah. what would have your bankroll been when you guys lost 86 grand? Well, so I think it was Ben that was the BP, the big player, and this is at Hard Rock, and, and he lost 86. On the trip, we lost more than that. Um, I want to say, and this was his and my money. This was when we were training our first couple members of what became the church team, but it was us and maybe one other person playing at the time. Yeah, we had we had one person tested out playing. And so the whole team was basically our money and us and one other person doing all the playing. I, my guess is our bankroll was 200,000 and we lost a hundred of it. We'd been on a incredible winning streak before that, so it was a little bit easier to stomach. But it was pretty crappy, you know. I think we'd at that time been playing long enough. We understood, hey, we're going to get it back. So there was no doom and gloom. It was just like, you know, you have one of those trips where it's like, I, I can't lose another bet. And then you lose <laughs> 10 more bets. And it's like, I, I can't keep losing. And you lose another session. It was just one of those. And it was fortunately sandwiched in between winning streaks, so it was okay, but... It softened the blow, I, I guess, a little bit. Yeah, it's it's just, you know, you wake up, and you're like, man, last <laughs> night sucked. Let's get, you know, 
some fruit or something in our stomachs and we'll just get back to the tables. And then it's like we got a flight to catch and we're going home and we'll generate more EV after we recover. Well, I think you just said something that's really important, which is this idea that you're not worried about if you won or lost a particular hand. You're worried about whether or not you generated EV. Yeah. And um, we need to spend a little time talking about this. It's something that comes up on the message boards quite frequently on blackjackapprenticeship.com. And it's really kind of like a mission critical concept, this relationship between EV, which is expected value, AV, which is the actual value earned during play, and variance. And the marriage of these three concepts is really important. Why don't you tell uh, our listeners a little bit about those relationships? Sure. So uh, I actually just, I had a phone call with a new Blackjack Apprenticeship member and he was saying how he was betting with no, like he hadn't worked out a bet spread. He just came up with one and he got really lucky and uh, won a whole bunch of money. And then he started losing it back. And that's when he signed up and was like, yeah, I got to figure out how to actually bet properly. But he used this phrase. He said, oh, I made $20,000. And then he's like, then I started losing and it felt awful. And I said, well, you didn't make $20,000. You know, you won 20000 Mm-hmm. But you can't think, oh, I've made that money because until you quit playing blackjack or, you know, maybe we use it until you close a bankroll or whatever it is, it's all just variance. So expected value is the mathematical expectation. If you played millions of hands of blackjack, that's how we make our decisions. But that is not what's going to happen the next hand or hour or 10 hours, probably not the next hundred hours. That's going to be these swings of wins and losses. And so you just have to have this thick thick skin and say, I'm going to generate EV and the actual value that the math will work out over time with wins and losses. And I didn't really understand this when I started. I remember losing a thousand bucks and being like, oh, if I would have just not played today. But I was really fortunate that I had one or two other people with more experience, Ben or Sammy, and they'd say, oh, well, you generate EV, you know, and they, they were able to teach me that stuff. And I think we learned also from other teams, we learned good things they did as well as things we didn't want to do. So there was one team that if they were losing on a trip, the people managing the team would say, hey, uh, extend your, your flight. I don't want you to come in back till you're in the positive. And we felt like, man, that's not the way we want to live. You know, mm. uh, we were already married Ben had kids, you know, we didn't want to feel this pressure of like, I got to play until I'm ahead every trip. So we were okay with having losing trips. We just knew, oh, it's all right. We'll have another trip. We'll generate more EV. It'll all work out eventually. And we didn't want to have that ethos of being obsessed with AV in the short term. I feel like there are losing streaks with like lowercase losing streak. And then there's losing streaks Big capital letters, right? So if you grind out a session for uh, five or six hours and let's say you're down four or five max bets, that to me feels emotionally like the equivalent of writing a term paper in high school, but it's on Windows 95 and the thing crashes and you've got to rewrite it. And it's like, oh man, it's like, it's really frustrating that, you know, that I'm down five max bets or whatever, right? And then there's losing streaks with all capital letters, right? And we know from Stanford Wong that we're only going to reach an all-time high in our bankroll a little bit less than 2% of the time, yeah. right? And and we might go 100 hours or more without reaching a new all-time high. So just from talking and messaging with 
members of blackjackapprenticeship.com, these long losing streaks of 100 hours, the wild swings and variants, I mean, they're really hard to take and self-doubt starts creeping in. Well, am I playing perfectly? Is my game off? There's the potential of the temptation, I should say, of overbetting to try to make up for hands that you felt you should have won. The game is so much more than computational. There's almost needs to be like this emotional shutdown or in your words, if you know you're generating the EV, you're not so worried about whether you won or lost, but it takes a lot of confidence to be able to to do that. Yeah, you're never going to be able to fully disassociate from, you know, the the session to session. And I think it's okay to, to feel the pain. I think this is a big part of why this job isn't for everyone. But at the end of the day, are you going to let those emotions impact your play? If, if you don't, it will work out. If you let the emotions impact your play, this isn't going to work out. You know, in basketball, for example, if you're a 90% free throw shooter and you miss a free throw, a winning player says, hey, well, I know I'm a 90% free throw shooter, so I'm going to get back on that line and take my next shot, right? And they're going to feel confident because they're telling themselves something positive. Their internal dialogue is positive. And if you go up there with self-doubt and you kind of see the glass is half empty and you're thinking about that missed shot, there's probably a better chance that you're going to miss that next shot and you won't be a 90% free throw shooter. Yeah. Somehow I feel like that metaphor relates to blackjack. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I think looking back can help if you've played long enough. We have a member, SD1, and when he got into this, he told his wife, and she was really supportive of it, but he told her, I don't want you to ask how it's going until I've played at least 200 hours because, wow. because he just didn't want that pressure. And that ended up being really a good, a good thing because he started out with a horrific losing streak. He just started losing right off the bat and losing for well over 100 hours. By the time he was at 200 hours – I think he was at or above EV, but it was really good. They didn't have, and I feel like that's a good, you know, maybe you tell yourself during a losing streak, if your game is on point, if you're playing perfectly, say, hey, I'm not going to let myself overthink this until I've played a couple hundred. I mean, I don't know if that's possible, but at the end of the day, you either have kind of thick enough skin to play perfectly. You know, I think... JC, no, he says, we don't find advantage play, advantage play finds us. I think that there's a kind of person that is drawn to this. And so when I'm at a table, the thought of not playing properly, it's like I feel gross inside even (laughs) thinking about not making the right decision, you know? So if you've got that, yeah, you can be frustrated and you can second guess everything or whatever, but you got to play properly. You put those bets out there. So what do you think the characteristics of a successful professional blackjack player are? I mean, you mentioned thick skin. What else? Yeah, I mean, you have to be detail-oriented enough that you're not going to miss a card. You're not going to have a slot machine start clanging and, and drop the count. There's that. I think you have to be, I think, a little rebellious or you don't mind being disliked or, or whatever it is. Like there, there's something about you where the disapproval of the dealer, the other players, the pit boss isn't going to rattle you or, you know, it might irritate you, but it's not going to change the way you do things. You know, I know there was a chapter I wrote on this. It was, it was a while ago, so I don't remember every bullet point off the top of my head, but those are like the core things. You have to have the discipline that you're going to test out perfectly and maintain that level of play. 
Joe and I were just talking about this a week ago, that you have to have that kind of hunger. I know successful APs of any age, but if you lose that hunger, you know, you're not going to be able to do it. At 22, I was hungry, you know? Mm. I wanted to do something. And I wanted to generate EV every day. Like it was fun and exciting. And I, you know, so, so whatever you call that <laughs> hunger. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because you mentioned in the book, and I love this, this concept of like headwinds and tailwinds, right? And yeah. so when you're new to something, you feel all these tailwinds that are pushing you and giving you momentum and there's excitement and you're seeing the positives of whatever it is. In this case, it'd be blackjack, right? And then once you're in the thick of it, sometimes those tailwinds turn into headwinds and kind of the reality sinks in of, well, mm -hmm. this is what I'm up against, whether it's variants or smoke in casinos or or whatever. Um, Back-offs. Back-offs, yeah. And I, we, we absolutely need to to talk at, about back-offs at some point. But I want to wrap up. I mean, with this whole thing kind of started with talking about EV, AV, and variants, and you have a great line in the book. It's probably my favorite line in the entire book, which is that though the feedback loop may take a couple hundred hours, you eventually get what you mathematically deserve. It's so brilliant because to me, what you're saying is if you play perfect, mathematically, you will generate that actual value should be pretty darn close to your expected value, yeah. right? And then there's this brilliant insinuation in there, which is that if you're not perfect, yeah. um, and if you're a gambler, and you're just kind of getting that dopamine hit, and you're kind of using this maybe as a guise to just gamble and, and as an excuse to be in the casino, you're going to get what you mathematically deserve, which yep. is you're going to lose money. Yeah, and I think if advantage play is finding you, that'll resonate with you. <laughs> If you're a gambler and you want to stay a gambler, you're you're not going to be able to hear that. But I, I you know, uh, man, I get YouTube comments that I, I read every day and it's like, you're overthinking it. It's gambling. You just got to get lucky. And it's like, <laughs> no, yeah, you have not heard a word I've said in the video you just watched. Uh, but I think to a true AP, they'll, they'll get it. And I wish someone would have said that to me at the beginning so I didn't second guess a losing day or, you know, losing shoe or whatever. Well, and you mentioned that community is um, important, especially as an AP, because when you have a bad day, you need to be able to blow off some steam or talk to somebody that might be able to understand what you're going through. And really, in reading your book, I see community as a common theme in your personal story. I mean, one, it's your relationship with your wife, Grace, who gives you the emotional support in the early days of card counting. And there's Ben, who is kind of showing you the ropes and maybe toughing you up a little bit. And then you have a friend named Jeff and Sammy, mm -hmm. who you previously mentioned, uh, who's kind of this like next, so Sammy's like this next level card counter that kind of mentors you and takes you under your wing. The church team is a community. Yeah. And then there's the BJA community. Can you just touch a little bit on all the reasons the community is so important, not just for BJA, but I mean, really, there's a life lesson here. To me, it's so apparent in reading your pages. Yeah, I mean, I, I really feel like we are so much the people we surround ourselves with. And, you know, if you want to be a good card counter, you surround yourself with other good card counters. I remember when I first started and I was playing on my own, my own bankroll, and I was instantly, I had not only questions, but I just wanted someone else to, you know, be like, oh, man, this happened. You know, I, maybe I don't even have a question. I just want to say or hear someone else. And, and I think that people that get into card counting, they can resonate with that. And that followed through with the church team and, and even being able to say, hey, this is kind of how we want 
this thing to work because it, it was never just about the money. You know, I got a really, really nice email from Spartan, who's one of our pros, and, and he was just saying, hey, there's a lot of BJ members coming into town this weekend. And, and he said, thanks for the community that, that you've helped foster. And I was like, hey, dude, that's way better. That's nicer to hear than, hey, thanks for helping me make, you know, lots of money. Um, I, I just think our impact on this world is probably not going to end up with dollars and cents. It's going to be how we treat people um, and, and things like that. Yeah. So let me ask you something. Casinos kind of can reveal the underbelly of humanity sometimes. I mean, how many hours have you spent in casinos? Probably about 3,000. 3,000 hours. Guess. I mean, that's, that's a lot of hours. How do you deal with some of the ugliness that you've seen in casinos? Because it exists. It's out there. It's degenerate gamblers or it's uh, alcoholics or a combination of the both or whatever it is. I mean, how do you separate kind of what you're seeing and the positive community that you've created with the blackjack community versus kind of like some of these very hard realities of what you would see in a casino? Yeah, I mean that's that's a tough one, and I think that that is a valid reason. If, if someone's like, "Yeah, I, I just don't like being in casinos," I, we had a few church team members that that they were good at it and they won six figures, and then they're like, "You know, I just don't like being in casinos," and I get that. Mm-hmm. I didn't enjoy seeing people gambling with money that they shouldn't be gambling with, or or people drunk at the t- things like that. You know, it's like hard to see and and sad to watch, but it didn't affect me in a way where it's like, I got to get out of here, anything like that. I think some of it comes to worldview, which is like, I believe that there's a lot of evil in the world, but I also believe that that there's goodness, you know, and I think we're created for something more. And I think that being in a casino, it was something I felt like I could walk into under self-control and for a good reason and not let everything I saw impact me. And, you know, I remember long conversations with people that I, you know, on our earlier team and, and saying like, yeah, what do you do when there's a guy that's clearly got a gambling problem? But I think if you just understand how people operate, which is that a lot of people have a lot of pain and they're trying to numb themselves in a lot of different ways. And gambling is just one of them. People that are alcoholics, the problem isn't the alcohol. The problem is that they have a pain and they're trying to numb it. Well, gambling is just another way to numb pain. It's it's an escape. You get chips, so it's not real money. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like you're you're in this Disneyland of sorts for a little while where you can just escape reality. And so the problem isn't the gambling. The problem is whatever is going on, whatever pain they're trying to numb. And when you see that, you say, man, these, these people have pain. I'm not in the casino to try to get them to stop gambling for this minute. I'm definitely not going to try to <laughs> encourage them in their problem. It's like I could walk into a bar uh, with a buddy and have a beer, and I feel okay doing that even if there are people in that bar that have a drinking problem. Well, I can go into a casino, generate EV, knowing that there are people here that are doing it recreationally that I'm not a big fan of, but whatever. And then there are people that have a compulsion, and it's really sad. But as far as the community being positive, I don't know. It's like kind of the... I think uh, we say with the church team, we only wanted to work with people we enjoyed. Mm-hmm. You know, there could have been someone that's like, I'm going to generate tons of EV, but if they're miserable to be around, well, we don't need money enough to to, to do that. Yeah. Well, I really enjoy a lot of the people in the BGA community. The people that help with the boot camps are really fun people to have around. And I feel like I want to run the business in a way that I enjoy 
and hopefully it attracts people that are having fun and aren't like arguing over tenth of percentage points of you know deviations and th- you know it's like th- not really the way I want to operate a business anyway. And it's always been that way, and and Ben was that same way when we were doing things. You know, I would say that from I've been a member of BGA since I've, uh, it's probably been about six and a half or seven months now. And I think that there's almost like a self-correction in that community where when somebody is posting and it really is a topic about gambling as opposed to card counting and generating EV, because there, there truly is a difference. Yeah. And uh, I think that your course and the articles that are up on your website really talk about that difference. And, and I... One of the things I love about this community is that when somebody starts really talking about gambling as as opposed to card counting, there is this self-correction and APs and members step up and say, hey, you know what, I don't think you're really talking about card counting and we're not gambling on this site. We're going through a very precise methodology mm-hmm. to get a expected result that we know will occur in the long run. Having said that, I feel like it's worth saying, certainly there's been addiction in my family, mm-hmm. and um, I, I feel like it's important to say that if there's somebody that's listening to this that thinks that they might have a gambling problem, they should call Gamblers Anonymous referral yeah. hotline. That number is 626-960-3500. If you're not ready to make a phone call, if you go to the Gamblers Anonymous uh, website, which is gamblersanonymous.org, they'll walk you through 20 questions. Yeah. And if you an- answer them honestly, might uh, give you some kind of an indication as to whether or not uh, maybe you have a deeper problem. And as you mentioned, Colin, maybe are trying to fill a void through gambling. Um, yeah. Or you might feel uh, a lot more confident knowing that you don't have a problem and mm-hmm. uh, and you really are in it for for the right reasons. Yeah, there's absolutely no shame in getting help. Yeah, for for you know any anything that that is has gotten out of control or that you're using in an unhealthy way. And you know, I don't know, I don't share this with people, but I've never shared this before. But I have like a list of blackjack apprenticeship core values. Um, it's like internal, you know, and I, I share it with people that that work on the site with me. And, and like one of them is that people are better off through blackjack apprenticeship than before. That's really important to me, you know? Mm-hmm. And another is that it's supportive, that, that there's kindness and, and positivity. And that's been there with the forum since day one, because, you know, there can be a lot of negativity and people can use advantage play forums or basically anything on the internet just to be the smartest person in the chat room or whatever and sure. and to put down anyone that's wrong. And we've always had uh, someone that helps run the forum that understands those values and is making sure things are staying, uh, encouraging and, and correcting people, not putting them down and, uh, you know, really trying to, we've always had like mission, you know, a mission and, and values, things like that. And we're just trying to live by that. Um, but if, if you do need help, like, you know, uh, don't, don't put it off. I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Call now. This is the sign you've been looking for. Um, there's a great quote, uh, in the book from one of your BJA members that goes by the name, the Phoenix. Mm. And, uh, he's, he, he says no amount of money is ever enough. And, um, He's talking really about enjoying the process and the journey as opposed to only the destination. Um, it's easy to get wrapped up in the idea of I need more and I need more and I need more. And yeah. when you feed your ego, your ego wants to be fed more, right? Mm-hmm. And and so uh, the Phoenix in this little excerpt is talking about maybe breaking out of that and enjoying 
the moment as opposed to just this end result. Um, and I, you clearly put this in here for a, a reason. It must have, the Phoenix must have resonated uh, with you when, you, and, and that's why it's in here. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that. And, and there's, a, there's a larger picture. You've already kind of alluded to a larger picture in, in life. Yeah, well, you know, uh, when, when I started counting cards, I didn't have any vision for, you know, uh, making much money or anything like that. And, and I think my wife and I, we had a budget and it was like $1,600 a month or, you know, something. Wow. Well, yeah, we had no debt. We had a $600 a month apartment and, uh, you know, and then in six months I've got 50 grand in the closet and, uh, <laughs> you know, of, of bankroll money. And, and it was like, whoa, you know, how should I feel about this? Especially from a religious background, which can be really black and white about things and, and misquoting, you know, what, what the Bible says about money. And, and so I was like, is this wrong? You know, what, what do we do here? And, and, uh, you know, had a lot of highs and lows financially early on. And even with, with the church team there, there were a couple of years there where, you know, there's a lot of money coming in. Um, and, uh, and I really kind of told, and I think I made a lot of mistakes with that. And, and, uh, you know, there's there's a saying by one of my favorite authors that uh, no one thinks they're greedy because there's always someone that has more. <laughs> you know, like if you ask someone if they're greedy, they're probably like, oh, well, I'm not greedy, you know, uh, and they'll point to someone that, that makes a lot more than them. And so I think it just, you know, illustrates that uh, it's, a, it's a slippery slope and we can convince ourselves that if I make another dollar, you know, and, and kind of that obsession with EV. And um, I wish I would have enjoyed those early days where I was generating, you know, $7 an hour EV. I wish I would have said, hey, it's not about getting to generating $20 an hour in EV or 100 or 200 It's about, like, this is fun and I'm, I'm never going to be at this point again or it will never be as fun <laughs> again generating $7 an hour of EV. And I, just, I like I said, uh, David said, write the book you want to write. And, and um I don't, I don't think if someone, I don't know, people that make a lot of money, a lot of them are just as miserable mm-hmm. as people that make no money. Some of them are a lot more miserable. Yeah. That's and sure. uh, I just, you know, Ben and I had this uh, project. It, it was kind of a flop, but uh, it was called Financial Apprenticeship. And it was just kind of trying to take some of those hard learned lessons we had had and, and say it's, it's more about alignment than it is about amount of money. Um, th- there's a something I feel like I learned from those years where I made a lot of money and probably didn't have the maturity to know, know how to handle it. I wasn't like buying Lamborghinis or anything, but, uh, you know, basically I don't want more money than I have a vision for is how I feel. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if I have more money, like the extreme example is what if you won, uh, the lottery, you know, the statistics say it's going to ruin you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's really tough to say, well, you know, one person said to me, well, I'd like to figure that out for myself. Okay, well, great. But I, I'm pretty sure, you know, I'm not going to be happier with a billion dollars or, you know, a hundred million dollars. And so really say, well, what, what is, you know, what are my goals in life or what am I living for? And, and, you know, I'm happy to share with anyone what I personally, spiritually am living for. But for that, you know, I, I care more about alignment than I care about needing another dollar. And yeah. maybe, maybe I do need another dollar for that alignment, but uh, I don't want to just say, well, let me make some more, you know, uh, a really silly illustration that we had came up with back in the day is like money, money is a tool or money is a resource. You know, how many tools do you need? Like 
if if you need a shovel well, is having 10, do you say, well, I'm going to get 10 shovels and then I'll really be able to start digging, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, right, as right. opposed to saying like, oh, well, I need this tool. Okay. You know, let me get that tool and then I can put it to work. Yeah. I'd, I'd rather live that way than, than just collecting tools and figuring it out later. Oh, that's great. I love that. Okay. We got to talk about back offs. Sure. I mean, it, it's, it's a big part of the book. Um, it's a big part of the BJA, the BJA website. Um, there are some people that are, well, let's just start for the casual observer. What's a back off? Yeah. Well, uh, the, the way I've been thinking about it most recently, this is since I wrote the book is the no shirt, no shoes, no service, <laughs> you know, like are, are you breaking the law by going to a grocery store without a shirt and shoes? No, you're not. But they have a right to say, well, if you don't wear a shirt and shoes, we're not going to let you shop here. So it's the same thing with casino. And I, I like putting it that way because I think people can instantly get it that you're not doing anything wrong. You're just not doing something that they want you to do and, and they're going to, you know. And they're going to ask you to leave. Exactly. And I think there's this thought of like, oh, well, if you can get backed off from casinos, then clearly you're doing something you shouldn't be doing. No, you're doing something they don't want you to be doing. Um, and, uh, so, you know, I think you're doing something you should be doing. <laughs> so you, you have a great story in the 21st century card counter, um, about a furious casino manager who yeah. backs you off and it doesn't go exactly the way that the, the casino manager planned it to go. Can you share that with everybody? Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure if I've shared this before on, on a podcast, but I think the thing I love about this story is it happened much later in my career. And, and I think even in the book, I kind of follow it up. Uh, it's the follow-up to a story early in my career where someone at the at the cage said, we need your ID. And I just, you know, scared card counter, handed her my ID. She takes it, you know, makes a copy of it. And she lied to me. She didn't need my ID. I didn't know any better. And now she had my ID and I think put me in the Griffin book, which <laughs> it doesn't exist anymore, but back then it did. And so then later in my career, I have this situation. I had learned, you know, I had a lot more... Uh, experience and wisdom about this. So this guy comes busting through a door and he's like, uh, you're coming with me. And he wanted me to go in this back room. And it's like, no, I'm not going in a back room with this guy. And I don't need to, he can tell me I need to, and I know better. I'm going to stay, you know, out in the open where other, you know, people at the casino can see and hear. And, and I said, no, I'm not going to. And he said, are you going to tell me that, uh, you're not counting cars? I'm like, oh no, I was counting cars. He goes, you get, you, he said, you tell me you're not Colin Jones. I said, no, I'm Colin Jones. He said, are you going to tell me this isn't your website? And he like opens up a folder and he'd print out the homepage of Blackjack Apprenticeship. I was like, wow, this guy did his research, you know? And uh, I said, no, that's my website. And he said, uh, you need to give me my money back. And I'm like, no, I don't. And uh, I said, I just want to cash out and leave. And, you know, I'm sure my anxiety level was high, but I didn't let it, you know, I didn't let him bully me. And, uh, you, you know, he, he's like, you think you can come into my casino and, you know, count cards here and take, take our money and said, Hey, I didn't do anything wrong. I just want to cash out and leave. And, you know, he huffed and puffed for a bit. And, uh, you know, then he says to these two security guards, I want you to cash him out. I want him to leave, and, <laughs> which is all I was asking for. And, uh, you know, the, the point is you always have a, a decision. You're not doing anything illegal. Uh, so you, and maybe they'll say, well, we're not going to cash you out unless you give ID. I mean, that guy already knew my name. I didn't care, but some casinos they'll do that where, you know, especially some tribal casinos, they'll say, well, 
you know, we're not cashing you out. And then you just have to decide what do you care more about, getting the money or preserving your ID. For the church team, we were dealing with large amounts of money, you know. So we always said, hey, whatever, just give them your ID, get the money, get out of there. Uh, but if it's a small amount, yeah, and sometimes I'd, I'd give my chips to, you know, my wife or, or another, you know, team member or, or another card counter or, or just a friend and say, will you cash this out for me so that you can preserve your ID. But I guess the moral of the story is don't let them intimidate you into doing something that you don't have to do. By the way, Colin's book is chock full of stories like this, and it's one of the reasons that the book is so good. Uh, there's this great combination of theory and stories and lessons, and it's almost like through you going to the school of hard knocks, us as readers can kind of learn these lessons along the way, and the, and the lessons really stick. Uh, you have one other great story that um, I'm hoping you'll share with the audience. Um, and it involves Sammy and a car ride and $40,000 yeah. in cash. Yeah. So this is probably my, my favorite story because it's just so, so wild. But uh, we had found this game. And it was about a three or so hour drive uh, from, from us. And we, we stumbled across that they had a one day a week promotion. And that promotion gave us an edge off the top, which, which what that means is, you know, imagine you show up at a blackjack table, and it's a true three at the beginning of the shoe. <laughs> so you've got the edge just sitting down, and the count actually had to get pretty negative to lose the edge. <laughs> so, you know, that's tons of EV. I think we had calculated it conservatively being at least $600 an hour of EV, but uh, $600 an hour, but you're going to get to the long run faster because you're playing through, you know, positive hands a lot. It had crazy swings, though, too. Like, you know, we would, you'd have, Ten twenty thousand dollars shoes all, all the time, but we were going. We would go out there. I think it was every Monday, and Sammy and I we weren't like as close. Like uh, Jeff, I don't talk a lot about him, but he and I are still very close. We get together almost every week. You know, uh, we're still really really good friends. Sammy and I we weren't that close of friends, but we were on this team together, and uh, so we would you know make small talk during the drive, and uh, we must have. I think we wanted to get there, you know, around eight o'clock at night. And so, and this is in the winter where in, in Seattle, it gets dark at four o'clock. So we're driving in the dark and, uh, it's, it's to this casino out in the middle of nowhere. There's no lights on the highway. It's pitch black. And we're talking about day trading or poker or religion or whatever, whatever it was. And, uh, all of a sudden I see I'm driving and it's my, I think it was like a, a 91 Subaru legacy wagon. And I see just a giant white object in front of us on the highway. My headlights hit it. And my first thought is it's a cow because it was huge. Are there a lot of cows in Seattle? Well, this isn't Seattle. This is oh, it's out, not Seattle. No, this is like middle of nowhere. Okay. Totally middle of nowhere. All right. And, you know, I had, I had previously run over two things in the last few 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 years before that, that had jacked up my car. One was uh, half of a bumper. There'd been like an accident ahead and they hadn't cleared the, the oh, freeway. God. I had a bumper and, you know, basically like messed up the front of my car. And then I'd uh, run over a semi-truck tire. Tre you know how like part of a tread will, like the tire will come yeah, off. Yeah. I'd run over that and it like ripped off my rear bumper. And so those things were tiny compared to this thing. And so <laughs> I'm thinking like, we hit this, we die. So I, you know, I make a split second decision. I swerve. I, I swerved back and I overcorrected and we hit the, the median and the car rolls and it rolled like one and a quarter time, I think, cause it, it landed on, on, uh, 
Sammy's side. So he's in the passenger seat. And my, you know, I, I, the first thing I say is, are you okay? And he's like, yeah, are you okay? Yeah. And then we're like, where's the $40,000? And it's this bag, you know, at his feet. And so I climb out of the driver's side window and, you know, all the, the, windshield, everything shattered, you know. Uh, so there's no no window. It's just empty. And I, I climbed through it. And I remember him saying to me, hey, hold the car while I climb out. And he's a he's a big guy. And it's probably really stupid. You know, I'm sure I wouldn't have held the car up. More likely, if the car would have fallen, it would have fallen on me. But whatever, I hold it up. He gets out and and we're both okay. I, I, uh, I remember my wallet. I kept that wallet for at least ten years, but it was all torn up from uh, glass because uh, I, um, I I don't know if glass got in my pocket. I don't even remember. I just remember the wallet was all torn up from the glass, and I remember I, I cut my hand a little bit jumping out of the car. But other than that, and some like uh, burns from the airbag. Other than that, we we're totally fine. And then we get to the side of the road and. Pretty quickly, uh, highway, you know, and other cars are coming in. They're like having to slam on their brakes because they're seeing this. And highway patrol shows up. Oh, and and then we see what the object was that I swerved to miss. And it was a plastic bag. It was like the kind of plastic bag that goes on a king or queen size mattress. You know, this giant bag. But because we're out in the middle of nowhere and like wind had just puffed it up and it took up a lane and a half. It was just this giant bag. (laughs) So from then on, you know. Sammy and I'd be walking down down the street and there'd be like a Ziploc bag and he'd be like, watch out, Colin. Or, you know, we'd buy groceries and he'd be like, hey, Colin, don't, you know, don't hit the, don't swerve your car and crash because of the bag. You know, that was his, his uh, sense of humor. Could you, could you imagine if, you know, there were just hundred dollar bills flying around oh, in the man. air, you know, if the clasp had undone on the bag that was holding all that money? Yeah, fortunately that, that didn't happen. And, and so we asked the highway patrolman, He's like, do you guys need a ride somewhere? He said, could you take us to the casino? And he's like, seriously? After this, you want to go to the casino? We're like, well, that's where we were headed. And he's like, all right, if that's where you want to go. And so I remember I had a bag. I'd put all of my contents that mattered to me into, into a plastic bag that from my glove box, all that stuff. And we go to this casino, and, like, my hand's a little bit cut up. And we sit there, and we play for, like – you know, play all night at that casino. And I remember I had one of my biggest wins ever. That's when you know you're a night. professional blackjack player. You know, when you can get in a car accident, almost have $40,000 flying through the air in the middle of nowhere and uh, still want to go to the casino after the, the accident. And, hey. and then you kill it. You crush it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We made the drive. Might as well, you know, we had nothing better to do until uh, someone could come pick us up. So we just generated some EV. Awesome. So you, another great part about the book, which um, is really not part of the uh, Blackjack Apprenticeship course, and it does get mentioned a little bit on the message boards, but uh, you really kind of go into depth about team play. Um, what are some of the pros? What are some of the cons of team play? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest pro to team play is is camaraderie. And, you know, it was harder. I feel like it was harder to find 15 years ago. Now there's it's a lot easier to, to you know, every I know a lot more solo pros now than than pros that are part of a team, but they all have a network. They have people that they can just, you know, phone a friend or whatever, as well as, you know, they have people that, you know, can get a simulation run for them if they're on the road, not their, near their laptop or whatever. They, they've got a good network, but camaraderie is a huge one. But the other pros are um, combining a bankroll. So, yeah, I probably wouldn't have made it with my $2,000, you know, if I – 
if I hadn't uh, teamed up with some other people and had a larger bankroll. And the beauty is if you have two people they each have $5,000. They can each bet off of $10,000, off a $10,000 bankroll. I don't know how many new people realize that because the the table doesn't know whose bankroll it is or who's playing or, you know, the cards have no memory. that they, They're not analyzing, well, that guy's playing on the same bankroll over there as this guy. All all the, the – it's two people that are just generating EV off the same bankroll. And so you can basically either – you know, massively reduce your risk, not cut it in half, but massively, <laughs> because your risk with $10,000 is going to be way, way lower than with 5000 or you can generate a lot more EV. And so that's a huge one. But but the other uh, one is you can get to the long run faster. So if I can play 100 hours a month and you can play 100 hours a month, hey, we can generate 200 hours of EV a month, get to the long run faster. You know, you don't need those things. If you have a bankroll, you don't need a team because you can do it on your own. And I think, you know, one, one of the cons is that you you don't have the simplicity of, you know, it's your bankroll. You make all the decisions. You decide how aggressively you want to play. You decide if you want tip or not tip. You decide what risk of ruin you want to play off of. You could decide completely on your own how much you want to play or not play. Um, and then there's, of course, personalities, you know. Um, you have to you know, mesh or be able to come to decisions. That's, that's, you know, especially that first team, that was really tough. We had a lot of strong opinions and personalities and, and it, it eventually became, you know, not fun anymore, even though we were making money. Uh, so those are some of the cons that I think the flexibility and, and, uh, having to run things by other people, but, you know, other pros is that different people have different strengths. Um, you know, I I was the guy that was responsible for putting together bet spreads, and then we had one one guy on our first team. We had, uh, or even on the church team, we had someone that helped plan trips. You know, and they would do the research and things like that. And we had, uh, you know, some people that are more available; they could get more hours in. Someone that has more money, and so they we can have a larger bankroll. There there could be people that that add different components, but uh, you know. People that are, their experience with card counting is either Holy Rollers or or Twenty One the movie. There's this thought of oh well you need a team or I see these comments on YouTube all the time of like oh well you need a team to do that. No you don't. Ninety five percent of what we did on any of the teams I did was solo play, and so the only reason we had a team was camaraderie, combined bankroll, and getting to the long run faster. Well, and, and there is another kind of team which is kind of uh, the relationship between like a spotter and a BP. Yeah. and you talk mm -hmm. about this a little bit. So. Um, for the unanointed, what is a BP? What is a spotter? Yeah, BP is big player. And that uh, – so the idea was – and this was Al Francesco, um, who's, who's awesome. And I hope to see him next week at the the Blackjack Ball. But uh, he – it was he saw his brother playing. His brother was betting like a dollar a hand but was a card carrier. And then he saw that the count was high. And so Al jumped in betting, you know, a lot larger. And he was like, hey – we don't, you don't need to sit at a table and wait for a good count, you know, to, to start betting. And there's no suspicion that this was, you know, back then there's no suspicion if there's someone just kind of jumping in betting large. And so the idea of having spotters that sit at the table and bet small, and then give some sort of signal to the BP, the big player to come in and bet big, you know, that, that was birthed back then. And we did some of it and it was really fun. I wouldn't say it's like, the best way to do there are a lot of inefficiencies and and you know kind of uh risks and downsides to it but it is fun yeah and and you're doing it together right yeah and you know some uh ap teams that that's they do it all 
you know, as a team, they all enter together and, you know, they're not interested in splitting up. Uh, I think there's, there's, uh, more efficiency splitting up or you want to have multiple ways you can attack the casino. I think if you want to do this for the long haul. So let's talk a little bit about blackjack apprenticeship, um, because not everybody that's listening to this podcast might be a member of blackjackapprenticeship.com. And you are one of the founders and you're certainly the face of the website now. Why would someone join the BJA website? Uh, becoming a paid member, I would say if it's someone that uh, wants to take their training a bit more seriously, you know, so uh, we've got a lot of videos and those videos go pretty in depth, especially the the new ones that, that I've been putting out every, every couple of weeks. Those go a lot more detailed than I even have time to go into in a book or anything like that. Uh, that's one reason, but you know, really, I feel like the software is is the biggest value, our, our training suite. So, man, I wish I would have had some sort of training software when I was getting into card can because then I wouldn't have been going to the casino with probably a losing game, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, and figuring it out, you know, basically wasting money and time developing a winning game. And so something I've wanted to offer for a long time is a way for people to test themselves out virtually before they test themselves out at a casino and we we've developed that and, and our drills there's there's other there's like a CVBJ there's other blackjack software we have an iPhone app but we really designed this as a way to step by step master every skill and then test yourself out virtually so that's you know a value and then uh the forum the community that's the thing I'm most proud of um and uh like I've said a network is really valuable having people you can share stories and, and, and ask questions, all that. Do you have any idea of uh, the age range of your members and, and where your members are from? Most are U.S.-based because most Beable Blackjack, there's more Beable Blackjack games in the U.S. than anywhere else. But we have members in Europe and in Canada and, you know, uh, even in some other other places. Um, but mostly in the U.S. and the age range is is kind of, all over the place, but I think it probably fits the typical demographic of a card counter. And, um, yeah. Okay. So let me ask you, do you still play blackjack? A little bit. Um, yeah. Yeah. How many hours did you, uh, play in 2018? I think I played like 60 hours. Um, so, you know, really not, not a lot, but I don't think people understand. I've got six kids. (laughs) Um, and you know, man, so I'm out of town right now and, you know, my kids, they, they don't like it. They're, they're young and I only have young kids for, for so long. And so, you know, again, it it goes back to goals, Mm -hmm. you know, Uh, my goal wasn't to play blackjack. My goal was to use card counting to reach other goals. And so I don't, you know, I don't feel a need to play more blackjack than that because I'm, I'm reaching my goals. So let me ask you for when you do play, um, I think you mentioned somewhere in the book that your AV is somewhere around $400 an hour. Yeah. And, um, you, at least in my mind would, I would consider that to be one of the top players in the world. If you kind of factor in, I don't know about the, that specific AV, but if you kind of took your cumulative experience, you know what you're doing. Um, probably more than 99.99% of all other blackjack players on this planet. I have no idea. I, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going to make that claim. I don't know. Okay. But. I'll claim it for you. Um, <laughs> What is your mindset when you enter into a casino, right? I mean, because in some respects, I'm sitting across from the Michael Jordan of 
Blackjack right now. Um, and there's a lot of people that are listening to this who have watched your videos, that are participating on the boards at uh, blackjackapprenticeship.com. Um, just, can you just walk your listeners through your mindset from knowing that you're going uh, to a casino for however long, um, just walk us through the whole process. Sure, sure. Well, first, I, I, I want to step back and say there are a lot smarter APs out there than me. There are people like Richard Munchkin, uh, James Grossgene, you know, Anthony Curtis is brilliant, Stanford Wong, you know, people with way more experience like Tommy Highland. It's true. You're actually not uh, that special <laughs> and forget it all. <laughs> I, I think that I've, uh, I'm very good at teaching it. Great. Okay. Uh, but and and I do have experience. You know, I've I've played on every every size and and I've really, you know, I'd say ninety nine percent of what I've done is card counting. So I really I feel like I understand card counting very well from from a uh, an applicable, not a theory, but you know, I've put in the hours, I've run the teams, all that stuff. I've trained uh, people that have won a lot more money than me. But to get back to your question, when I go into a casino, I'm looking at you know what are my options. What are all the blackjack games they have available? Uh, when I say what do they have available, I mean uh, limits. I mean the exact rules. I mean how crowded each table is. I, I, I'm even looking at the pit bosses, you know? If there is an unkempt elderly person or someone that's like looking like they're trying to get a promotion as a pit boss, you know, they're dressed really nice and you, you could tell like they're paying attention and, you know, I'm going to play with the unkempt person that's kind of disheveled and, you know, uh, is probably in, in over their head when it, when it would come to an actual card counter at their table. I'm looking at all those things and I'm saying, what's, what's my best option? I mean, even to step back before that, I want to know before I go to the casino, what they're going to have to offer. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm going to want to see on Casino 411 or find out from a friend what to expect. Um, I went on a trip uh, last year. It was the only like real blackjack trip. I mean, I played some more in Vegas and some other places, but the only like, hey, I, I want to go on a blackjack trip. Before I, I went, I knew I talked to another pro and, and you know, I, I saw what Casino 411 said, but I even asked someone I knew had played a lot there. Hey, where should I play and not play? I knew pit bosses names to avoid. Wow. <laughs> uh, you know, I was fortunate to have that network, but, but if I can have that information, I want to know it. And I used it, you know, to my, to my advantage. And then, okay, so I find the best table and I'm not going to just sit down and start playing. I'm going to one, wait for a shuffle mm-hmm. Two, I don't even need to sit down until I have a true one at least, you know? So I'm going to back count. I'm just curious. I'm watching. And, and, and the dealer's, oh, have a seat. You know, the dealer wants me playing because the only way they get tipped is if I'm playing. But I'm like, oh, no, I'm not sure if I'm going to play here. You know, and then I'm asking the players, oh, how's this table going? And, you know, just seem like I'm on the fence about it. I get a true one, sit down, put those bets out there, start playing, you know? And I don't want to have my head on a swivel <laughs> and be like looking around, but I also want to be aware of what's going on, you know? And, uh, if, if the pit boss, the phone's ringing, they're looking at me, they're pointing, you know, then I'm like, okay, I might not want to stay here too long. If they're, if they're not, you know, paying any attention, I'm going to play longer. And that, you know, while also keeping my, my head up on what are my other options. If this table goes south, if it gets crowded or the count drops, what's my next best table to play? And I'm paying attention to what is the deck penetration so that if I go to another table, I can be comparing one dealer to the other. You know, on that same trip, uh, there was a double deck game where the dealer 
was cutting off as few of cards as I've ever played. And so I played with that guy every time he was at a double deck table. You know, I kept my eye on him uh, on his rotation throughout the casino so I could always play with him. Um, other dealers that, that gave a bad cut, I avoided them and I, I would play a six deck game, you know, when, when that person was at, when the crappy pen was at the double deck. And, you know, that's the way that I'm, I'm thinking about things. And then, you know, I'm trying to play perfectly as many rounds per hour as I can. Perfectly. <laughs> If I can play perfectly, I want to play perfectly as fast as I can. That means fewer players. That means, you know, I don't have my feet up and, you know, rubbing my lucky rabbit's foot between every round. I'm, those bets are out there, you know, as soon as possible after the previous round. And, uh, you know, I think I even mentioned in the book what I've started to do more recently is be like, hey, feel free to deal as fast as you want. And, and you know, you don't need to slow down for me. And if a dealer obliges, I just generated myself quite a bit more EV. Right, because you're getting in more hands per hour than the average uh, dealer would yes. would be dealing. Yeah, yeah. The best way to think about it is we're not there to play blackjack. We're there to generate positive rounds of EV. How many positive rounds of EV can I generate in an hour? If I can generate twice as many as you, I'm going to make twice as much money over the long haul. Yeah, that's so insightful. Um is Colin, the husband, father, teacher, the same guy at the table, uh, <laughs> or is it a different person? Uh, I'll show I'll show dealers pictures of my kids if they're like you know sometimes they'll come up I don't know how or or another player like you know I'm not like Colin at the table is in like single you know billionaire or whatever <laughs> like I'm I'm me. Uh, but I'm there to work, so I'm not wanting to have long conversations, you know, um, whereas if you came over to my house, you know, for dinner, I'd, I'd be happy to have a long conversation with you. So I think earlier on, I put all this thought into what's my backstory and things like that. And then first off, people rarely ask. Secondly, if they do ask, I don't want to get into a long conversation because I can't keep the count while having a long conversation. So I want to have a one-word answer or, you know, or something kind of that gives the impression, hey, I'm not here to talk. I'm here to play. Um, so, but I don't put this elaborate thought into any weird backstory, you know, um, and I, I just try to generate EV. How do you, when your session is over, um, I'm assuming you're, you're uh, measuring the amount of time that you're at a, at a table so that you can kind of compare your EV to your AV. Is yeah. that correct? So, yeah. Okay. So um, how do you wind down after a session? Um, one thing that I have heard from multiple people on the Blackjack Apprenticeship website, um, and I have certainly experienced this myself too, is that, uh, you know, counting is very, it's a very focused intense thing. Um, and maybe for you, it's, uh, you've done it for so many hours that it's, it, it's less brain processing. Um, but my brain, and I know some other members on the site, their brain just keeps going. Yeah. It just keeps running. Right. Um, how do you distance yourself from the table when that session is over? Yeah. Well, I think I'm just like you guys, you know, my, I'm, I'm doing all those mental processes. If, uh, and I'm, I'm rustier now playing 60 hours a year than I was when I was playing, you know, a thousand or, or 1500 hours a year. So if anything, I, I have to play a little slower than I could at my, my peak. And I'm very aware of that. I don't play faster than I can. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, you know, I'm, I'm doing all the mental processes and, you know, even, even I'll say, Hey, I don't play at, uh, $400 an hour 
games now. You know, I'll play games that are between $1 and $200 an hour. So I'm sure my dollar per hour is slowly dropping <laughs> as I'm not playing at the stakes that I used to. I don't care about that. I'm, I'm not, you know, doing it because I need the money. I'm doing it because, you know, I want to keep, I want to know what it's still like out there. I want to, I, man, I come up with 10 video ideas or content ideas playing at the tables or even it was, it was in 2018 that I first had the idea of asking the, or suggesting the dealer can deal faster. Like I want, I'm, I'm there for that. Not, not for the money, but all those mental process. And of course I, I would feel, I want to play a, a game that, that I know I'm making good decent money at. But while I'm there, I'm going through all those mental processes. When I get done, I'm wired, you know, but, uh, I don't know. I, I guess, um, I'm pretty much always coming back to a hotel room or, or a house that there's some, you know, like either I go on a trip with, with a buddy or, you know, um, something like that and, and whatever we can like debrief, the session, which is always kind of fun. Mm-hmm. You either lament that awful shoe where, you know, we got a true six through three decks and, you know, kept buying in round after you lament that, or you talk about like how swing tens actually worked mm-hmm. <laughs> or whatever it is. And after that, you know, uh, try to do some, try to do something either like put on ESPN or, you know, count up my money, do, do those things. Uh, yeah. Catch up on email, call, call the family or, or hang out you know, hang out with whoever I'm on on a trip with, and uh, you know, wind down when I wind down. Yeah, because I, I, it's hard. I mean, I, there, if you play at night, for example, and uh, you kind of finish your session and uh, are kind of getting ready for bed or whatever, it is not uncommon for people to be up in like kind of can't fall asleep and yeah. they're in their bed just still kind of. Yeah. buzzing um yep. not buzz like i don't mean that in a in like a from like an alcoholic sense or yeah. like on a high sense i just mean like the brain just kind of spinning and going and going um from that yeah time. i've i've done the thing you know melatonin ian anderson you know talks about that i've done melatonin uh that, i usually wake up kind of groggy with that or or there's like over the counter sleep aids i've done those or i just wait till i finally fall asleep and the, usually there isn't a time you have to be up in the morning and so you're just kind of on blackjack hours right yeah you're on blackjack that's that's the beauty of it um are you familiar with the comedian albert brooks no no okay well he was a really big deal in in like the 1970s and um and you know he still does he's he he writes and and directs and and um there was a time in the 70s where he was just kind of one of these like top comics in the U.S. and he was hanging out with musicians like Harry Nilsson who was really good friends with John Lennon. They're at a bar. One day Harry says, hey, John Lennon's going to swing by and pick you up in a in a, uh, in a limo and I'll meet you over at, you know, this other party or whatever, right? And Albert Brooks gets in the car and, you know, he's kind of like stunned because he's face to face with John Lennon, right? He's a, he's a Beatle, right? You yeah. know, and... Um, he doesn't know what to say. And so John Lennon just stares at him and goes, I know you, right? Uh-huh. Because that's what everybody thinks that they know John Lennon, right? And so he's kind of poking fun at the yeah. moment and that Albert Brooks is so kind of like shocked by this moment and meeting this guy, right? Yeah. And um, I th- feel like 
most people listening to this podcast that have seen your videos have actually spent like an enormous amount of time with you, um, mm. maybe unbeknownst to you, right? I mean, and and because these videos were shot over such a long period of time, <laughs> we've kind of like watched you grow up over yeah. the last like, you know, seven or eight years, yeah. you know, when your hair was longer and you were wearing, you know, a skull cap and, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, couldn't even really make eye contact with the camera yeah. to now and uh, you're polished. And, um, <laughs> and so... I feel like the members of this community feel like they know you, but what it is is that we know a side of you, yeah. right? We know a piece of you. Um, what else would you want listeners to know about you? Oh, man. Um, well, I don't particularly enjoy talking about myself, but but I because you asked, um, you know, I, I think maybe a few things come to mind. One is... I really love blackjack apprenticeship, but it's not the most important thing to me. Uh, the most important thing to me is my faith, followed by my family. And because those things are the most important thing to me, um, you know, blackjack apprenticeship, it has allowed me to pursue those things. And, and before blackjack apprenticeship, the church team, and before the church team, the team I was on before that, uh, the Washington Youngbloods is what I call, called it in the book. I couldn't use the real, the real name, or I would have wrestled some feathers. But, Great name. <laughs> but those things have always helped me pursue the most important things to me, which are my faith and my family. Um, and uh, you know, I'm never going to be the most. Um, you know, I I could do a lot more, but I, I always have to keep things in check. You know, I, I, time is way more important to me than money. And I'm really, uh, I love Black Check Apprenticeship. I love the community. I'm really proud of it. Um, but, you know, there's a time where the I'm not going to answer the phone. I'm not going to reply to a text. I'm not going to answer an email because I'm with, with my wife and my kids or, you know, things like that. And, and uh, hopefully other people are, are that same way. Um, Another thing to know about me, uh, I don't know, man. Do you uh, know how to swim? Uh, yeah, my, my dad was a, uh, uh, he held California state records for swimming. Are you serious? I mean, it, I yeah. just made that up on the spot. No, I, no, like, no. This wasn't was, like a planted thing. Yeah. No, uh, no, my, my dad was an incredible swimmer, all sorts of medals and trophies. Um, and he didn't really bother teaching my brother and I to swim very well. Um, so I, I can swim. I actually even took a lifeguarding class so that I could graduate college on time. And that's how I met my wife because we were lifeguarding together at this Bible camp. But, uh, you know, I could save someone if they were drowning, but I'm not going to win any, <laughs> any swim race. Um, I play multiple instruments, um, a lot less now. Uh, and that doesn't have to do with blackjack. That has to do with number of kids, um, I don't know what else there is. Well, what, what, is a typical, what does a typical day look like for you? Sure. Um, yeah, wake up. Uh, when I wake up, I don't, I don't set an alarm, but my kids are my alarm or I'll just wake up some, somewhere at 7.30, 8.30, which, you know, before kids, it was like stay up till 2 or 3, sleep till 10 or 11, uh, and that those blackjack hours have gone away. And, um, you know, I spend time with my kids. I spend time reading my Bible. And then I, like, start checking email. And, and I, I really take it seriously trying to serve the Blackjack Apprenticeship community and, and uh, just all, all those things. We're, we're constantly trying to improve the software. Um, and, 
you know, so I'm managing a little bit of developers and I've got a couple of people that help run the site. And, you know, I'm always trying, I've got a content calendar that I try to stick to with videos for members and YouTube videos for free. We do Beyond the Felt every week, which is our email newsletter, and then try to put out at least a podcast a month. And I try to stick to that, but, you know, that could also change because it's, it's important to me. Uh, it's not the most important thing to me. And those, those goals are always, always shifting based on, you know, the most important things I feel like I can do with my time and, and the, uh, most important relationships. But to be honest, a lot of the, the BJ people are those closest, uh, relationships at this point because it's really cool people. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it, it, attracts a kind of outside the box person. And, uh, and I enjoy hanging out, hanging out with those people. What, what advice would you give to your 21 year old self? You know, looking oh, back at those geez. red Robin days. Oh man. Um, so much advice. <laughs> One thing I think I'd say is to find, uh, the right kind of mentors. I'm not, I'm honestly not really big into ad advice giving. I used to be. Uh, but a couple of things have changed. One is what I believe now might not be exactly what I believe in five years. I don't necessarily mean like religiously, but, you know, there's all sorts of advice I gave 10 years ago that was bad advice. Mm -hmm. So when I say finding a mentor, I don't mean someone that just tells you everything you should do, but someone that you say, wow, the way they treat people, you know, I want to learn how to treat people like that. The, the way they approach life, you know, and I don't. I don't say like get all their advice, but I would say like they're probably doing some things right. Mm -hmm. uh, I think another thing is is really investing in um, always learning. You know, I feel like I'm always trying to learn more. Uh, I would say spiritually, I'm trying to learn more on a personal development front, or as a husband and father, I'm trying to learn more in terms of an internet business owner. You know, if I can learn more about blackjack, I, I should. You know, so you know, having that attitude. And, and I think, um, man, I just heard a really good phrase. It's like, it wasn't setting goals. Oh, it's aspirations. You know, people will make new year's goals, you know? And so I was like, ah, don't use goals, use aspirations because goals, it's like all this, like, did I accomplish it or not? Aspirations are like, I want to move this direction, mm -hmm. but I'm big about, uh, setting those things for, uh, for my family. Like we have goals we have the big picture goals and then we break it down into, well, what are we trying to do this year or this month or whatever? Um, call it aspirations, whatever you want to call it. But um, because I think there are a lot of people with great ideas, you know, oh, I want to, you know, well, are you going to accomplish it? And you're probably not unless you actually kind of roadmap it. I would, that was literally the word inside my head, which is building the roadmap. It's great yeah. to know where you want to go, but to take those larger chunks and turn them into smaller chunks um, is so important. I think that's one of the best things Blackjack Apprenticeship has done is, is kind of create a roadmap to becoming a card counter. But there should maybe even be a roadmap to get out of card counting so that you don't <laughs> find, you know, if like, let's say that you don't want to be a card counter for the rest of your life. You know, we had people on the church team that when they left, they had no roadmap for how to exit. And they was like, oh, crap, you know. Um, I just got married and my wife doesn't want me gone or whatever it is. Well, did you figure out how you're going to get there? And, you know, so I'm, I'm a big advocate of, of, you know, playing to fail is, uh, failure to, or failure to plan is playing to fail. Yeah, that's great. Um, 
We are kind of nearing the end of our podcast. I'm wondering if there's anything else that you would want listeners to know, um, whether it's about the book or about you or the card counting experience, um, because it's rare that you're on this side of the microphone. Sure. Yeah. Well, I, I, there's a couple things that come to mind. I just had a really great I hung out for a couple of days with uh, Joe Seven Four Eight, and we had a great conversation about this because you can get into car and you, you know, there's nothing like those early days when you're growing a bankroll, and it just feels like I could never imagine anything being as fun as this. And then you reach a point where you know those those tailwinds wear out, and it's it's not scaling the way it was initially. Because, you know, you could go from 5,000 to 50,000 in a couple months. Well, you're not going to go from 50,000 to 500,000 in a couple months. Or even if you did, you're not going to go from 500,000 to, you know, 5 million in in a couple more months. And so, you know, that excitement kind of wears off. And I I think it's a common thing to, you know, be like, oh, Kirkang isn't what it was. And you want a new thing to give you that, that same feeling. And I think you can go from experience to experience trying to capture that feeling. I just I just don't think that's the way to, to approach life. So I would say for card counting, you know, whether you're new to it or you've been doing it for a while, really so, – so this is what, you know, I was asking Joe, like, yeah, what, what are your thoughts on it? And he, it's really cool because he's been a, a card counter for four or five years now. And he said he really basically understands what it is and what it isn't. And it's the, the best fit for him to – continue to have the kind of the freedom he desires or to, to achieve the goals he wants to achieve. But he's, he doesn't have that frustration because he's not putting it any longer into a bucket of it being something that it isn't, Hmm. you know, like, yeah, it's a grind and yeah, it involves frustrating, uh, losing streaks and back offs that, that can be infuriate, especially back offs when you're losing, you know, but when he knows, okay, it, it is what it is. And that's a good fit. Or if you realize, hey, this isn't a good fit, you know. So I guess what I'd want to share is figure out if card counting does or doesn't fit your goals and really try to – I hope the book gives a realistic picture of what it is and what it isn't. And if you want to make six figures with card counting, you can probably do it. Whether you should, that's really a, a different question. I think another thing that I want people to, to know about the book or about our approach is, hey, this is this is our experience. This is how we've had success with it. it you know, someone might pick up this book in, in five years and be like, well, this has changed. Okay, great. Well, take in that information and use it for, for your approach. You know, whether you decide to use a little bit of cover, okay, do it. You know, we made money by using very little cover. Um, but I want people to have a... An, you know, another angle or, or at least like my best advice of how we've successfully, not just me, you know, we end every chapter with an interview of, of another successful card counter so people could really get a, a realistic picture, you know, and then use that information, you know, add to it what you've learned from from other people. And uh, I, what I don't want to hear is like, oh, well, Colin says don't use cover. I use cover. Therefore, I disagree with Colin's book. Well, right. Throw the, ba- throw the baby out with the bathwater then. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, if you want to use cover, okay. But please hear my side. And if you decide to not use cover or to use very little like we have, maybe you should also hear the side of people who do. Then you can really have a full picture. I hope that this book helps the card can community. That would be my goal. If it doesn't, it'll be a huge failure. <laughs> Because I didn't do this for the money. I did this to really try to do something that I thought would be helpful. 
The name of the book is The 21st Century Card Counter. It's going on sale soon. I just want to thank Colin Jones for a great interview and for letting me take over his podcast for a day. And hope to see all you guys up on blackjackapprenticeship.com soon. Yeah, thanks. This was a lot of fun. And thanks for having the idea of interviewing me for the book. Hopefully people enjoy this. It's my ultimate EV play. Plus, I got to read the book before everybody else. (laughs) Win-win. All right. Bye, everybody.